Oh, why did we do this to ourselves? Folks, welcome. I am Mark from the Unsung Podcast. Je suis Chris, <laughs> the, the podcast Unsung. <laughs> Welcome in. We're now doing it bilingual. We're uh, trilingual. <laughs> We're reaching out. Well, Scots English as well. Yeah, quadrilingual. We're reaching out to our international audience now because we are officially hot shit. We are hot. We are hot shit. <laughs> Don't know if you heard. Yeah, did you hear the advert? <laughs> <laughs> Was it two advert? I can't remember. Mattress man pants. Something American. That thing that shaves your balls that they do in Manscaped. 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 Yeah. Oh, so we've just given them a fucking full shout out. A yeah. shout out. Forget that one. <laughs> Go for generic Tesco clippers. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I give them a shout out as well. I am not. Other brands at, are available. Like, I, I, I'm not used to this world of, you know, monetizing my. Yourself? <laughs> endorsements. Yeah, myself. All right. Welcome to Unsung Podcast. Uh, it's been a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. Mark, look at the neck of me. Yeah, look at the Nicky. The boy's back's exploded. <laughs> I think everything exploded. Sorry about not making it last week. I genuinely was going to be there, but the dog ate my homework. <laughs> yeah, but I was like, I think I was like half an hour away from leaving the house, and you're like, mate, I'm going to the hospital. I was like, all right, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I did not see it coming. Uh, no one ever does. And I'm going back tomorrow as well. But at least this time, I'm going of my own volition. Uh, and if they chop me up and sell me for parts, then at least I won't have to edit mm-hmm. this enormous episode <laughs> that we're about to do. Now, this would be traditionally the first episode of the year in the kind of vein of like Deftones or Queens of the Stone Age or such like. But uh, as a result of the Christmas episodes overrunning and then Hospital mm-hmm. and our newfound friendship with uh, Believe... Mm-hmm. Things got pushed back a bit, so we're effectively doing the start of the year big hitter uh, at the start of February. Mm-hmm. Everything's a little bit delayed this year, isn't it? And the thing is, January felt like it was like a year long as well. It's been a weird month. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, listeners, uh, we know most of you are not in Scotland, but take it from us, well done. Yeah, if you made it this far, then it's only uphill from here. <laughs> it's, it has been a, Possibly. Bit, a bit of an endurance. We had two storms in a week. Mm-hmm. And I was I found myself in the middle of one today in <laughs> Edinburgh as well. You had a dog barking yeah. in the distance. Yeah, yeah, that's that's great. <laughs> it wasn't even a sound effect. Yeah. It was an actual dog barking in the distance. A bit of foley. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, Edinburgh. That was blustery today. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're not in a really fancy hotel. I was in two fancy hotels, actually. Um, so yesterday... Uh, Stealing I, laptops. I was in the Waldorf. Astoria for an event. How does someone like you get into the Waldorf Astoria? I just walked in the door and they, they greeted me very normally. Was, I don't believe that. It was pretty great. <laughs> and then this morning I was in the Balmoral, which was owned by Sean Connery. It's got a plaque, and when you walk in, it was opened by Sean Connery, which is fucking bizarre. <laughs> yes, welcome to the Balmoral. I think uh, they would have seen you and been like, sanitary bins are over there, mate. That's a ladies' <laughs> toilet. Just assuming you were emptying them. Don't take that personally, but I mean, guys, they tats like that. Unless you're playing Premier League football, don't get into that hotel. 
Well, I did. And oh no, maybe, maybe you like, welcomed me in. I suppose this is me showing my age. Is besides from my exploding back, the the fact that I think tattoos are not what rich people do, but it seems no, it very much is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. especially yeah. the oligarchs, mm. the ones that did time in Russian jail or want to pretend they did time in Russian yeah. jail. You get some of these American artists now, like Post Malone, for example, who are like getting anesthesia to get their entire back tattooed, and I'm like, mate. That's fucking ridiculous. Like, a tattoo, even if you use, like, a really good artist and you do, like, a full day session, maybe one of the best tattoo artists in the world is going to charge you maybe two grand for that session, maybe three. Mm-hmm. I guess if you're, like, fucking doing it for American pop stars, maybe five. Mm-hmm. They get anesthesia alone means you need to get an, anesth- an anesthesiologist in. That's going to cost, like, 20 grand <laughs> off the fucking bat. Do you know what I mean? So it's like, just suck it up. Don't be a fucking idiot and just uh, just. Lie down and deal with it like the rest of the day. If you can afford not to be in pain, would you not not be in pain though, Mark? Uh, would you like pain? I don't. I don't like getting tattooed. So <laughs> Post Malone's got too much money. He probably struggles. It's like Brewster's millions. He doesn't know what to spend it on. <laughs> <laughs> Anesthesiologist, apparently. <laughs> yeah, Brewster never thought of that. <laughs> yeah, maybe he should have. Um, so talking about. Uh, enduring uh, lengthy spells of pain Mark uh, this, <laughs> this, this episode's could be about REM how are you feeling? Craig and Callum are probably listening to this and I've just been sending them for the past Three weeks because it's been three weeks <laughs> that this band are fucking shite. Um, they're not, but there was a point I was like, I can't, I can't. They have a way of grinding I just, you I just can't anymore, man. <laughs> and then I went, I went pretty much every second place I went, there was an REM fucking song playing as well, man. Yeah, it's true. They do follow you around, especially mm. if you work in somewhere that has a daytime radio, your Clyde One yeah. or your Central FM, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, is that my advertising radio stations now? Am I? Are radio stations even exist anymore? <laughs> like, <laughs> I think it's so quaint. Um, but no, I, yeah, it, it was hard going. It's probably some of the hardest listening I think we've had to do. Um, oh, really? Wow. Nope. I mean, I, for me, this was actually quite an enjoyable one. I just think there's a lot, a lot of beige, a right. lot of it. Do you know what I mean? Um, but there are there are good moments as well. Yeah. See, I know. would say I, I actually off the bat show my hand a wee bit here. I do kind of agree with that. There, there is quite a lot of, uh, not so much filler, but just kind of unremarkable stuff. But at the same time, I find it a lot less sort of egregiously difficult than some of the things we've covered. I def- it's not difficult. It just it, it just becomes a test of endurance at the end of the day because they're a band that really... It's like, a big career. It's a big well. career. And when they started going into the major label and stuff like that, they, they add maybe two or three more tricks to their box of tricks. Mm-hmm. And they've probably only got about five or six tricks that they do over yeah. the course of their career funnily enough can I just jump in there I know we're kind of dancing around it we're about to dive in in more detail but I actually think some of the tricks that added to the box of tricks form some of the more beige moments definitely uh-huh. uh huh and, and in recent times when they've recaptured some of the more simple arrangements it's actually been some of their more vibrant stuff yeah um, you'll be pleased to know that I have for the purposes of digestion divided REM into three eras it's a good uh, idea. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think it actually is pretty relevant mm-hmm. as well. Yeah, because I can I can probably guess roughly about what those might be. So yeah, there are there are there are phases and eras, mm-hmm. and maybe a good place to start is to give you my perspective on this band. First of all, why this band? Secondly, why this album? And the album we're going to cover is called New Adventures in Hi-Fi, and it's from 1996. 
It was recorded in a very unusual way, we'll get to that. But um, I should point out that I came into REM at what I will go on to describe as the start of phase two. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I was not a, a, an old school REM fan. Yeah. I have friends that were, mm-hmm. and they've actually been quite useful in informing my opinion when doing this, because I think sometimes I could have be, you may have noticed this in, over the six years we've been mm-hmm. together in this show, a little bit dismissive. Yeah, <laughs> um, I think the first year I think lends itself to dismissiveness quite well. So do PAs at the second era And the third era There's fucking albums in there The other band themselves don't like (laughs) You know what I mean I think (laughs) it's actually quite uh, important Not to be dismissive of that first era though And we'll we'll dig into that a wee bit It reaches a zenith Which is when the second era happens You know, they do Mm. get to a point where it's like They've got the two tracks And they've they've mastered those tracks absolutely, yeah Uh, We'll we'll dig into that first uh, era With the help of uh, an author You may recognise called Elizabeth Wurzel Mm -hmm. um, Who famously penned Prozac Nation Yeah um, Kind of famous 90s do you remember when books about depression and antidepressants were very in vogue? I mean, you're maybe actually just a little bit young for that. Yeah, it's very Gen X. And yeah, exactly. <laughs> like the Douglas Copeland sort of era. Yeah, Douglas um, Copeland's very Gen what was X. That Girl Interrupted, mm-hmm. that, that sort of thing. Um, I really remember when that was very fashionable. People mm-hmm. were going back and finding the Bell Jar and Virginia Woolf and stuff. And Elizabeth Wurzel was big in that era. And that was also kind of the era of grunge when that sort of introspection, depression, alternative culture all that sort of stuff was very much to the fore and the milieu the kind of cultural milieu of that brought REM and Elizabeth Wurzel together and she wrote a really good article about it that I'm going to refer to quite a bit to backpedal just a touch though why have I chosen this band is it because um, of Kurt Cobain's favourite band no, uh, I don't know that they were Kurt Cobain's favourite band. I think Kurt Cobain, at various points in his life, said everybody was his favourite band. He was yeah. kind of a bit. The reason scattered. I say that is what well, he said that Green was one of his favourite records of all time. Yeah, he was a huge fan yeah. of REM. He, he made mm. repeated comments about how if he could write a song as perfect as X, Y, or Z by REM, mm. he would consider himself to have succeeded. I think he was interviewed towards the end of of his career. Um, he said that. Automatic for the People was probably the best record he's ever heard and he thinks that Nirvana have at least one record left in them and it will be acoustic like Automatic for oh, the People. Oh, that's right. Uh, people said that was the direction mm. they were going to go. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, he's a big fan and he became close personal friends with Michael Stipe, Stipe. as well. Yeah, uh, that we'll, we'll get back to that in the course of this. But why this band? I think first and foremost, I think R.E.M. are a bit misunderstood and a wee bit misrepresented in popular culture and kind mm. of general reactions. Um, I think they're seen as a, maybe by some people they're seen as like a 90s Coldplay uh, or they're kind of classed in with the likes of U2. Um, and I actually see them, and I'm going to make this case, uh, I see them as being altogether kind of uncomfortable with their fame to some extent. Certainly not courting it in anything like the same way as some of the people they're compared to. Um, I see them as, as, as far from Coldplay in as, as so much as they actively pushed away from their success at points. Um, only, you know, ironically enough, for popularity to follow them on the new paths they took. Mm. We'll go into this in a bit more detail, of course. I think how you see them has a lot to do with your age. Definitely, uh, yeah. 100%. Man. Um, and... and as I say, I'm a, I'm a phase two guy. That's I came in right at the start of phase two. They, they came onto my radar. I was 10 or 11 years old when I first heard them properly. And it's important, I think, to acknowledge that they were absolutely a very credible, important group for a whole 
generation of young people uh, and you know social misfits and alternative types in the 1980s And I think that's not what people think yeah. when they've maybe been born in like, yeah, mid to late 80s and by the time they're old, R.E.M. are getting kind of old and they're on all the, you know, it's, it becomes kind of like granddad music. Yeah, they became a dad rock band, really. Um, why this album? New Adventures was just at that teenage Goldilocks point where I was kind of forging my own tastes. Um, if, if we go prior to that, when I was aware of the band, I mean, Automatic for the People was pretty much ubiquitous, actually. Uh, I mean, Sidewinder Sleeps Tonight, Night Swimming, Everybody Hurts. Man in the Moon. I mean, I, I remember listening to that when I was young alongside stuff like Suede, mm. very early 90s. Um, I was about 11 years old, I think. I remember being with my friend Jeff, who's he's passed away now, actually. So it's quite, it's very nostalgic and it takes me back to a kind of pre-music taste time when I didn't actually have my music taste firmed up. Mm. It was still mainly, you know, some of my dad's tapes that I quite liked, mm. a couple of my mum's tapes, and then trying to find stuff on my own. And they were, they were one of those bands that I kind of latched onto. That was a very fast moving period for me as well. Every six months between the age of 12 and 14, I was just churning through so many new bands to try and find these tastes. It's not mm. like now. Now that your musical taste is kind of established, it evolves more slowly. But in those years, in your, your teenage period, you're like enthused about something, checking out something else, finding out something else. You're just battling through the tunes, man. Absolutely, mm. yeah. Um, I think like Automatic for the People was the album, the singles of which were on the radio when my dad uh, got a car, for example. My dad didn't drive until I was until he was much older and I was about 11 years old. And it just seemed that R.E.M. were always on the radio in the car. My mum, who I think to this day still refers to them as Rem, mm-hmm. <laughs> I just will not accept that correction. So I've given up trying to correct her. But she quite liked them as well. And I think the fact that that period of their career was the stuff that your parents could quite like sort of coloured people's perceptions of them as well. Um, and again, just prior to New Adventures, uh, Monster was right in the cusp of me embarking on my own musical tastes. Um, I think for, What's the Frequency, Kenneth, was definitely one of the first things I actively bought because I liked it. What's the Frequency, Kenneth, this Maybe just 12 months later, something like that, I I was a new and I was a huge Nirvana fan and I kind of worked my way back to Monster again, partly because of the track Let Me In. which was about Kurt Cobain, played in Kurt Cobain's guitar, we'll talk about that. Uh, the band referencing Kurt Cobain in interviews and the fallout after his suicide, which, I mean, the Kurt Cobain stuff, I was gorging in that at that point because I'd just missed Nirvana and so I was just consuming everything in that orbit. Mm-hmm. We'd spoke about that on the Incesticide uh, episode. So, New Adventures in Hi-Fi to me, it does have a lot of that introduction bias. This was my sort of personal entry point to the band, really. 
and it you know it's a lot of nostalgia it soundtracks me at the age of 15 I mean I remember getting this album not long before I got my first girlfriend <laughs> pure virgin lips uh, age of 15 you know first kiss I remember nervy trips in the train getting the train to go and see her she lived in this town called Bishop Briggs and I, I really recall the landscape being associated with the tracks in this mm-hmm. album um, and songs like Ebo the Letter were perfect for that sort of stuff and what I like about you teenage film stars hash bars cherry mash and tinfoil tiaras dreaming of Maria Callas wherever she is this fake thing I don't get it I wrap my hand in plastic to try to you know, I mean, I don't think myself and like we weren't together very long. I think it was about two or three months, which felt like a fucking era at the time, mm-hmm. right? But equally, breaking up with someone and getting that first experience of sadness and a bit of guilt and a bit of regret. Tracks like Eve with a Letter and stuff were perfect for soundtracking that yeah, as well. There's yeah. a real melancholy in that album that went perfectly with it. So it's a formative record for me. Mm-hmm. A really important time in my life And it, it is the theme song To a lot of those experiences um, So as I say, yeah, I think R.E.M. Are best tackled in three phases here uh, I've broken them down as You know, the early years uh, 1980 up until leaving the IRS label In Mainstreaming with Bill uh, being the second phase, which is Green, which is again about 1988, through the New Adventures in Hi-Fi tour in 1997, uh, and the departure of key figures in and around the band. That's me in the corner. That's me in the spotlight. Losing my religion. Trying to keep and then Middle Age and the Come Down, which is the Up album, which would be 1998 until, well, effectively present, but the band broke up in 2011. That's a smart thing to do, really. Yeah, I mean, at least they had the good grace to do that as well. Uh, but theirs is a transition, I think, from fringe to mainstream to a different, and let's just call it less romantic fringe to be kind. Well, and the third era, you would, I would argue they became elder statesmen of alt-rock in America. They became the popular face of alt-rock, but the dad version. Yeah, they, you know? like Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as well in 2007, mm. all that kind of yeah. stuff. Yeah, the rites of passage. It's th- One thing I think which... Uh, I'll probably mention, I'll mention it now because it, I think I want people to think about this when we go through this episode. But REM are what all the rock bands in America would have sounded like if not if grunge didn't happen. You know, they I think grunge kind of did them dirty a little bit because they were just get they were just getting ascendancy, and their sound was completely blown apart, completely out of date, pretty much overnight. Most rock bands would have sounded like REM. They wouldn't have sounded like post grunge is a thing, and bands still fucking sound like grunge bands now. You know. Mm. Which I think is quite interesting to think about when you, when you consider the bands that popped up after them. Nobody's really citing them as an influence, but they're citing Pearl Jam, Nirvana, you know, Soundgarden, all that. You don't really hear the influence of them so much. You know? So, I mean, I think you're right in that it tripped up their sound becoming dominant, but at the same time, so many of those grunge bands, Pearl Jam, like Nirvana, nodded to them. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I've largely went back to REM because. 
Nirvana gave them the seal of approval yeah. to go and investigate. Mm. I think if that hadn't happened, maybe there would be a stronger case for that. But I do think, yeah, it had an effect on them, but they also benefited from it in other ways. And I also think, to some extent, REM's sound gravitated towards grunge mm. as well. It did, yeah, especially in this record. Mm. So I think it's probably sensible to do the due diligence that we're so proud of uh, and go back through the basics, okay? So R.E.M. is one of those delightful bands where largely it was the same people for for the period that we're really concerned with just now anyway. All the time, one person left, but that was still the same core members, yeah, you yeah. know? So you've got Mike Mills, Peter Buck and Michael Stipe who were in the band all the way through and you've also got Bill Berry who was in the band from its inception up until 1997. Uh, just following the album that we're going to be discussing. Uh, they were active from 1980 until 2011, as we said. Uh, they were from Athens, Georgia, which is also the same city that the B-52s mm-hmm. of Love Shack fame were from, and that plays a part in one of the big singles that uh, came along later. Um, Ariam met at a University of Georgia. They have 15 studio albums. That's not including collections of singles and B-sides and all that kind of stuff. Uh, They have at least 90 million sales. It's probably a bit higher than that, actually. It's worth noting that for a long time, R.E.M. were releasing an album every year Mm -hmm. uh, in the 80s, which consistently grew both their reputation and their fan base. Mm -hmm. Also worth noting that they are still within the top 500 most played artists on Spotify as well. Mm, I didn't know that. Uh, well, I mean, certainly Losing My Religion's on 1.2 billion, isn't it? Yeah. Um, the guys originally bonded over a love of the Velvet Underground television, Patti Smith, all of which you can completely see uh, the, the, that tracks. Um, and Patti would make an appearance later on as well. Uh, interesting bit of trivia. Early band names included Twisted Kites... Cans of Piss mm-hmm. and Negro Eyes. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> Can you fucking imagine a world where R.E.M. were called Negro Eyes? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it wouldn't have very far. I mean, I actually feel like Cans of Piss was the safe option. Yeah, yeah I think so. <laughs> uh, so the band, uh, for I think it was again about 15 years, had a manager called Jefferson Holt. Who they met? I think they met him in '81, and they parted ways in 1996. Now he left by quote uh, mutual consent or mutual agreement, mm-hmm. um, but under a little bit of a, an NDA veil of secrecy, uh, it, it's rumoured that it was related to a pattern of sexual harassment of other staff that were working with the band, okay. and the band taking exception to it. Called him out for that quite early, I guess. Yeah, yeah, pre me too. I. They're a fairly political, very progressive... Very, very liberal band. Very um, liberal band, yeah. I, I think they're not obviously politically political, but Michael Stipe was always very act, very, very much an activist, very outspoken, very... Mm-hmm. Had causes and stuck to, you know... Yeah, and, supported they, them, stuck and to them. they do mm-hmm. have strong political themes in some of their songs. Mm-hmm. I mean, Orange Crush, mm-hmm. about Vietnam, and they used their jump up to major labels to really platform a, a lot of ecological stuff mm-hmm. in, in particular. Their first single, or the first release actually, was Radio Free Europe. It was on Hiptone Records. Which, by the way, I found out, even though it was a tiny wee release, and it still got into the New York Times' top ten singles of 1981. Wow. Which is crazy when you consider mm-hmm. the, the songs that came out in 1981, mm-hmm. and this little record 
on this little label got into that top 10. So pretty early on, they were getting some good critical acclaim. Yeah. I think their sound really chimes with a mixture of the kind of American indie and that Smithsy British yeah, there was that. stuff yeah, of, the, like, of the era. My only weakness is, well, never mind, never mind. Short left is of the world. Unite and take over. Um, I think the Smiths are a band that a lot of the fans of R.E.M. have in common, you know. Various aspects of the band I think are quite iconic, Michael Stipe's lyrics, and I think his voice in general, it was distinct and it's recognisable from the very early stuff. Some bands, when you listen to their early recordings, you can tell the singer's not quite grown into his own, mm. you know, accent on his own, and clearly Michael Stipe gets more confident, but you, right from the very start you can hear his voice and it's mm. very identifiable. Um, also, Peter Buck's picked uh, arpeggiated, shall we call it, guitar parts oh, um, with m- minimal distortion. As opposed to a lot of the kind of strummier, fuzzier, comparable bands that they were classed in with in the kind of mid to late 80s. Also harmonies as well. Mm-hmm. Huge thing. Um, a lot of harmonies. Sort of vocal and vocal sort of call and response. Yeah, loads of really catchy backing vocals. In fact, in some of their stuff, it's a little bit like Weezer. At, at points, there's some backing vocals that steal the, the, the spotlight, really. Mm-hmm. Um, Bill Berry, we mentioned, left in 1997, breaking that original lineup after 17 years. But the band continued, and it continued with some pretty decent people. I, I mean, they were in a position to get some decent people yeah. involved. They had uh, Ken Stringfellow of the Posies. They had William Rieflin of Swans and Nine Inch Nails. They had uh, Joey Waronker of Happens for Peace. He's brilliant. Yeah, uh, Yeah. they had Barrett Martin of Screaming Trees, uh, Mark Lanigan's band. Actually, Bill Berry rejoined them a a couple of times for just like one-off performances. He did one in 2003 and then he did the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame show in 2007. Uh, They did a live John Lennon cover. Mm Was it just a dream? And and that went on to feature on a charity album, raising money for Darfur. Yeah, it, it, it seems as though that it was totally mutual when he left the band. Yeah, well, he apparently told them, "I'm not going to leave if you're going to end the band. I'll keep going." Uh, and the band said, "We'll keep going without you." And he said, "Right, I feel comfortable." leaving then knowing that I'm not destroying it and yeah it seems like they were on good terms I mean there had been a lot of health problems in the run up to his departure Mm -hmm. which we'll get to so yeah I I mentioned earlier on uh, the article by Elizabeth Wurzel the author of Prozac Nation she wrote uh, R.E.M. for the Nation uh, and this was in the Oxford American magazine in 1993 
Um, it was written not long after the release of Automatic for the People, so that kind of you can you can kind of date her comments that way. And as we know, that was a huge mainstream success. But she'd known them and been familiar with them for a long time mm-hmm. up to that point. She wasn't, by the way, a massive REM fan by any means, but she just thought they were a very interesting cultural phenomenon. And so, yeah, her, her observations, I think, uh, offer some interesting insight in the journey of the band up to that point. She described her time at college in the late 80s and hearing every open dorm window listen to one band, mm-hmm. R.E.M., uh, you know, various albums at that point. She's like, right here, this one out of that one and that one out of this one. The Northeast colleges in particular with high levels of political activism, R.E.M. were really popular there and that kind of fitted mm-hmm. because they did have these thoughtful themes in their music. Yet, she points out, and perhaps this is one of the reasons for the band's astonishing levels of success, that also in the kind of, maybe true to their southern roots, R.E.M. had a big following at the other end of the college spectrum. The American South, the more conservative states, the more religious states. because they're fundamentally a country band. Yeah, that's it. They have so much country in their music. And therefore, you didn't just have this kind of East Coast, West Coast band. You had this band that had a very, very pan-American appeal. His voice is very southern in places as well, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, I mean, the band were being played in, you know, sorority and the frat houses that they, uh, given that R.E.M. were effectively hippie LGBT youth, uh, they they personally probably would not have been welcoming, yet Mm. their music... Yeah. Was blasting out of it. It's worth it's worth bringing that up as well. That they are well, Michael Stipe's always been very Openly gay. open. He's not. He's queer. He's bisexual. All oh, right. Okay. Because he has he has a he, his partner as a man, and I think they've been together for something like fifteen or twenty years. I think they live in Berlin and New York. Um, but no, he slept with women and stuff like that. So he is he is bisexual. Oh, I didn't know that. I always thought Michael Stipe. Yeah, was that was that's a common misconception. I think he described himself as an equal opportunity lech. <laughs> so like he's just you know. Um, if somebody's attractive to him, then he's happy to to, to, to pursue that. But yeah, I think um, I think he's I think he's um, yeah he's definitely been in relationships with women in the in the eighties and the nineties as well. So yeah, good for him. Um, so there's a quote, or a couple of quotes by Elizabeth Wurzel from that uh, that article. And long before any REM albums went gold or platinum, the band's omnipresence in the college scene made them as much an oppressive force in bookworm circles as the mainstream music they were supposed to be an alternative from was to the rest of the world. Listening to R.E.M. also seemed to be a first step toward declaring yourself a member of some strange special interest group. She also discussed, and I think it's quite interesting, her reflections on sort of the mainstreaming of alternative culture at that time. They were right at that inflection point. Uh, You know, the rise of Gap and alternative marketing Mm. and the way that capitalism co-opted fringe culture. Uh, She goes on to say, um, this is to say that R.E.M.'s music became popular about the same time that a standardised commercial notion of an alternative lifestyle was developed so that all the bric-a-brac and bohemian touches that college students invented for themselves and thought were just theirs actually became something that could be bought at shopping malls anywhere in America. You were suddenly able to buy jeans with holes already punctured in the knees or to purchase fishnet stockings with runs already snagged up the sides. So I think through no fault of their own, R.E.M. and maybe to a lesser extent bands like Pixies, Husker Du, although their roads kind of branched off differently, they were the face of an era when being a misfit actually became strangely conformist or at least strangely normal. And I think that has slightly tainted the band's reputation, you know, because it did sort of pave the way for that seamless slide into mainstream markets. What came after them was just this very, you know, to the point where like torn by Natalie and Brulia. You know, mm. that's effectively 
alternative pop except to us it's the most mainstream of mainstream pop yeah Yeah, it's built on the premise of the stuff that bands like rem helped normalize yeah i think it's i didn't do this probably should have done this to be fair but um i think it would be interesting to track how music changed around them because their sound they didn't get more poppy really they always had choruses they always had like catchy backing vocals and all that and they always had like cool riffs and oh no they they, at times got quite obtuse yeah but the even even in the records that, that are in the middle period, there's still some like quite obtuse moments on them. Mm-hmm. But if it was as though the mainstream moved to them, or they kind of bent it around themselves, I think it's. I mean, you know? we'll discuss this in more detail. But I think it's fascinating because at every point where you think REM are sort of drifting away from a sound because it feels too cheesy. So let's say shiny happy people gets huge. Michael Stipe hates it and so they bring out Automatic for the People which is pretty morose mm-hmm. and then it becomes like a phenomenon and then they're like right okay well that was kind of pretty downbeat let's bring out a fuzzy rocky sort of a glam rock album and then that gets really huge as well so it wasn't like they were it was maybe maybe there's a bit of both I would say they were chasing Monster reflects the grunge sound but at the same time it also reflects them kicking away from this strummy a low energy pop that they were kind of doing a lot on Automatic for the People and so it's kind of fascinating because they stayed popular I think in large part due to the fact that they were just consistently good at the things that they did at least for a certain period of time Um, I don't think they were necessarily trying to court great success nobody releases a song Drive as a single after Shiny Happy People Mm -hmm. if they're looking to top the charts Nobody tells you where to go What if I write? What if you want? Yeah, but they did know how to write a big single, though. Oh, they did. And they still did. So I think it's a bit like the Cobain thing. Like, he wanted to be punk and alternative, but he also kind of wanted to be popular. There's a, there's a percentage mix there that mm. I can never quite decide. Um, but I don't think they ever seemed incredibly thirsty, apart from maybe on a couple of occasions that we can maybe point to. But um, Elizabeth Wurzel also points out that the band themselves were also one of the inspirations for a whole new approach to major label marketing. Um, she says, because REM became rock stars via the support of college stations, record companies suddenly realised that promoting at the university level was a marketing technique worth trying. REM had built itself up to multi-platinum status through gradual and incremental growth and had maintained a base of deeply loyal fans throughout, mainly because their following began at the grassroots. Using REM as a model, record labels realised the importance of artist development and slow growth. They realised that the big hype might sell a million albums once, but it won't build a band for long-term career. It seems reasonable to say then that REM's success taught some record labels a few honourable lessons, but it also skewed the term alternative to define a new branch of commercial music. While alternative music had always happened by accident, i.e. a band would discover somewhere along the way that they just didn't fit into a pre-existing category, suddenly alternative itself became an anti-category. Record labels actually set up alternative departments. So because of R.E.M., the oddball music that used to just barely subsist on the margins of pop music culture is now marketed as aggressively and expected to sell just as well as, well, she says Michael Bolton, but, you know, use any contemporary example. I think we've, we've discussed 
that in the context of Nirvana as well, obviously. You know, Nirvana turned a marginalised form of music into the main form of music of the era and the feeding frenzy ensued. Mm-hmm. Um, stylistically, um, Wurzel describes them in the early days as a mixture of the birds and the Velvet Underground, which I think is actually really pretty good. Um, you know, especially the kind of, you try to describe Peter Buck's guitar style. It is quite clean and it's quite 60s and it's quite hippie and psychedelic. Um, but they have always had that sort of slackery uh, counterculture thing of like, the, you know, they toured with Sonic Youth and things like that. And that the Velvet Underground part of that is consistent, I think. And it also captures that kind of awkward position between edgy student counterculture and that, you know, the birds, that ultimate tape in your dad's car thing because mm-hmm. REM were both of those things really they very ably I think synthesised familiar and successful existing elements of modern music and then kind of delivered them with an energy and a freshness that made them immediately enjoyable you know rather than being let's say like Pixies and Husker doing stuff they were they were very innovative and challenging whereas REM were really taking some of the 60s stuff and repackaging it and delivering it in a modern way mm-hmm. that made it quite accessible, yet still had an edge to it. Yeah. And in that way, they sort of set the scene for Nirvana as well. Nirvana's sort of Beatlesms. You know, you're taking these great ideas, but you're delivering them in a kind of more modern and slightly counterculture fashion. Mm-hmm. It's one thing, we were talking there about uh, how REM were the band that were in your dad's car, but they're also the band that were, you know, all the young kids were listening to. I think it's because... Probably, they might actually be one of the, the earliest examples of a band that grew up and the audience grew up with them and just happened to ride that kind of tide with them. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? So by the time you get to the late 90s, like they're roughly the same age as what their core audience is, if yeah. not maybe slightly older. And they've grown up with them and that's kind of happened in sync. Very few bands get to do that. There are bands that obviously change it over the course of a career, but... More often than not, like the bulk of their fans don't go with them or they change their sound so much that they end up getting a whole new bigger audience because then their old stuff never ever gets a look in anymore. But with REM it was gradual, so if you discovered them in the 80s and then they were doing stuff in the 90s when you were maybe less into music, you know, if you were starting to like have kids and get a mortgage and you were no longer in college and you're like, oh, it's still REM and it's now... You know, I'm a bit, I'm a bit more mellow, and this is a bit more mellow. And then they'll do something like monster, and you'll be like, oh, well, they can still kick it though, right? <laughs> if, if they want to, you know. So I think there's probably part of that as well. Was like they've they were able to kind of go. Their audience came with them, roughly the same age, and were happy to follow them wherever they went. Yeah, as she points out, they did nurture and a very solid, like loyal base. Mm. core base of people that had grown up with them and they became almost the iconic band of those people's formative years and a lot of people stayed with them and and a lot of them stayed right through the next phase as well because as you say those people were getting to an age where their own tastes were changing and the new stuff that REM put out okay maybe it wasn't the same as the previous stuff but they could go with it not all of them by any means Mm -hmm. a lot of people went from REM into much harder stuff as well a lot of people graduated shall we say into stuff that was more edgy but they were they were good as a gateway as well. Mm. 
Um, so just as a final observation, Elizabeth Wurzel says, uh, what it mainly served to prove was that college students are basically conservative and conventional in their musical proclivities, and that after years of a steady diet of punk rock or of cacophonous, screechy noise music of one underground movement or another, they were probably quite pleased to find that something as melodious and pleasant as R.E.M. could now be passed off as alternative. And I think that's not their fault. R.E.M. were radio-friendly. They, they were one of the bands that highlighted the power of college radio. Uh, they, they showed... One of the first, probably. Yeah, like definitely one of the first and one of the best examples. And that was because they had that alt thing of, like, yeah, that got them classed in with Husker Du and the, the, the bands of that era and Dinosaur Jr. But yet they were just that bit sweeter... That thing that, you know, maybe your folks wouldn't shout at you to turn it down. Yeah, you yeah those two bands you, re- you, you mentioned there are noisy and angular. That's it. Yeah. But they were contemporaries. Mm. And, and yet R.E.M. just were... And I think they were taken seriously by their peers. In most cases, it seems. that People respected them. They didn't think they were charlatans or, you know, sellouts or anything. But yet what they were doing was definitely on the more melodic side of it. Yeah, there's, there's a whole kind of piece of like... Rising tide lifts all boats in that era. They were just mm-hmm. having to be on the crest of the wave that was yeah. you know, making the tide rise. But they were know? definitely easier to swallow for mm-hmm. people that were maybe a little bit alienated by the, the kind of harsher sounds. Although, you should say at this point, because I've been pulled up on this point in the past by you know ardent REM fans from the early years, their live shows were pretty fiery. They were like I would say an indie punk band mm-hmm. in the sense that they were jangly and fast. It's a bit like the um, the Violent Femmes. So the Violent Femmes are on record quite twee and banjoy and quite silly. Yet live they were dead raucous. Get it by Voices, maybe another example. Like these bands aren't heavy, heavy, but yeah, that didn't mean that when they got on stage, there wasn't a real strength and power and confrontational quality to their shows. Mm. And I think that would also help cement the people that saw them in all those early tours. And they were like, oh no, this band really does kick it. These tunes are great, but when you go and see them, they really jump up a level. And I would say, you know, spoiler alert as we get later in their career, you find that quite often their live versions of things are superior to their album versions of things because they are an exquisite live band, very consistent live band, obviously consistent membership. And just in their later years, the studio, I think, starts to fail them. But back then, young, full of piss and vinegar, but yet also full of tunes. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I think maybe we'll break there and we'll come back and we'll start digging into the discography. How do you feel about that? I think that sounds really good. Smashing. Right, see you shortly. 